generally I've got four key elements of the strategy. Those elements are consistent year after year. You got to adjust right as the external landscape and the internal landscape changes. You got to be able to adjust, but the key things have got to be consistent. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Mark Ferguson, CISO at Bombardier, about identifying your most valuable skills early on in your career, the four key elements of a security strategy, and which business partners to bring together after a major breach. Knowing which skills to hone earlier in your career often comes with 2020 hindsight, and managing a breach can feel much the same way. What elements can help strengthen your program right now? And why are transparency and speed so important in the moments following an incident? Mark, good day. If you would, for the uninitiated, tell us who you are. Hey, Steve. Well, hey, first of all, thanks for uh, inviting me to come uh, talk to you today. So my name is Mark Ferguson. You could probably tell by the accent. I'm not from uh, North America, originally from Scotland. I'm currently located in Montreal as the uh, CISO for uh, Bombardier. So in that role, I got a responsibility for Bombardier's cybersecurity program as well as risk and compliance. How long have you been in Canada? Oh, well, so I've been in Canada three months now. And uh, the advice I give to people is, do not migrate to Montreal in January, because that was when uh, when we moved here. We came from uh, Europe. We'd been in Poland for a little bit, for about a year, a little over a year prior to uh, to uh, coming to Montreal. And uh, you know, timing had it that we we moved right in the middle of winter. We came straight into two weeks of lockdown, so two weeks in quarantine. And as I recall, our first day out of quarantine, we were desperate to get out. And we walked on the streets of Montreal and it was like minus 20. <laughs> it was a very short walk, I can say. But Montreal's a beautiful city. Every time I've been there, I've enjoyed it. Now, I haven't been there when it was that cold, mind you. It's strange, right? Because we're in this lockdown pandemic period. So it's uh, it's difficult for us to get a, like, a real gist on what the city is like. But everything we see about it and everything we hear about it tells us it's, uh, it's a great city. So we're just looking forward to it. Opening up, hopefully, hopefully in July, later this summer, right? We can experience some of these things. But here, here is a great place for like festivals and food and that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. So, looking forward to uh, to experiencing some of that. It's a vibrant city, wonderful place. I wish my my French were a little better at times. Oh, me too. <laughs> Did you take French at Scotland at home? Are you versed there? Yeah, so I took French at a school, like most of us do in the UK. But uh, that was a few years ago. So <laughs> I was, uh, in fact, more than a few years ago uh, since I uh, since I last learned any French. So I've enrolled here, and Bombardier offers uh, French classes. Uh, so I'm just spending a couple of months getting reacquainted with the language. But it's tough, especially in uh, in Montreal. I say to my colleagues, it's it's hard learning French in a in a French city where nobody actually speaks French. <laughs> Especially the part of the island we live, we live on what's called the uh, the West Island, and it's it's very much an Anglophone part of the island. So it's uh, you know you go up, you you go to stores, and you 
you introduce yourself in French and ask a question in French and they respond in English. So it's a little bit hard to learn. You know, I don't know if I've ever heard French with a Scottish accent. <laughs> so that, that's got to be something. No, I, I think this is an interesting, this was not a planned question I had for you, but you said you were in Poland mm. and then moving into Canada, to Montreal. Has travel been a part of your career or at least being the, what, what is willingness to relocate all around the world meant to your career? Would you recommend it or is it just sort of accidental? Great question. So, I mean, I've been fortunate enough. I've mainly worked in large, diverse, multinational uh, organizations. So, so that's given me an opportunity to travel for the job, right? Originally, I was based in the UK working for a, a large American uh, conglomerate. So that gave me lots of uh, travel opportunities to the US. I will say, and it's probably because we had family at the time, I think opportunities were there to relocate to the US sooner. I probably resisted them, right? Because it's easier to stay with what you know than go for something new, especially when you've got young family. But uh, at some point, the question did come up and it became unavoidable. And I was given the opportunity, I think, four years ago now to to relocate to the United States. And it was a big move. But we, we did the move. And I, I, I got to say, once you've done it once, the prospect of moving again, it, it holds no fear after right. that. So I would say to Anybody, if you if you ever get the opportunity to live and work somewhere else, grab it because it's it's a great opportunity. I mean, it's not without its uh, issues, but uh, you know, we did it. We did, went to the United States, spent a bit of time there. Then, through circumstances, the opportunity came up to uh, to go back to Europe with a role in Poland. And again, you know, if you'd said to me like ten years ago, "Do you want to go work in Poland?" I'd say, "Hell no!" It's like, well, why would you want to go work there?" Right? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> But having done the move once, and then you realize, well, the whole logistics and the whole moving about pieces, you know, once, once you can get your head around that, the, the opportunity to experience a new place is fantastic. And we had a great time in the United States. We had a fantastic time in Poland. And then when, uh, you know, the uh, business changes came around in Bombardier, we decided we were going to sell the European business. That gave me the opportunity to move back to North America and move to Montreal. And again, you know, that was like this. That was probably the third transatlantic move in three years. Oh, wow. You know, by then, it's just like, you know, it's like going for your uh, monthly shop at the grocery store, right? It's just something you do at that point. So <laughs> it's hopefully this is the last move. I'll say that. Hopefully this is the last move for uh, for a few years. But uh, if anybody gets the opportunity, I, I would say grab it and, uh, you know, go with it. Cause it, just, it just opens up so many new horizons for you, new opportunities and meet new people, learn new things. It's, it's great. I don't see it as much in the States. I think there's obviously many people who enjoy travel and international travel. I don't see it happen that often. I don't know of many colleagues. You know, the position I'm in pre-COVID, I was flying all over the world, which I generally greatly enjoyed, but it was still kind of a temporary, right? You're there for a yeah. week. You know, it's on a longer term assignment. You mentioned that you're taking, you're sort of updating your French a bit. Was the expectation that you also spoke Polish? My my grandmother used to sing to me in Polish, <laughs> so I it's all I can remember. Did you did you? How's your Polish as well? I'm extremely curious. My my Polish extended to Jin uh, Dobry, <laughs> and that that was pretty much it. So I think by the time we'd left there, I think we'd been there like twelve, fifteen months. I could just about separate the, 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 the words. If somebody spoke to me, I could just about tell what was a word, right? And what was a new word, right? Uh, but I couldn't tell you what any of those words were. It's such, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
it's such a difficult language. Fortunately, today, right, we we were in Krakow, uh, so pretty much anybody under you know thirty speaks really good English, and they're willing to speak to you in English as well. So it was quite easy to get around. And then Google Translate, Microsoft Translate, without those tools, it'd be a lot tougher. But uh, technology definitely makes it easier to settle in a place like Poland. I've never, I've actually never been. It's one of the places I, I haven't made it to yet, but uh, that's good information. I kind of had to, had to ask you about that. I, I, earlier when we spoke, one of the first things I asked, hey, like, how's it going? And you said you kind of exhaled and you said, yep. there's, some days I re- there's some days I regret picking up the phone. And it was tied to sort of even jokingly becoming a CISO. Why do you have that feeling some days? You're right. You know, there's some days I cast my mind back and say, you know, when we were uh, going through the whole uh, the whole process of me taking my first CISO role, you're like, why, why the hell did I have that conversation? You know, I could have been doing a, uh, could have been doing a, a mid-level SME type role, still contributing, still doing good work without a lot of the grief you get in the uh, CISO role, right? So, you know, I mean, I, I'm, well, what am I now? Almost six years into the CISO role now, right? You, you get good days and bad days. It's like everything. So, uh, you know, you get those days where you've got so many problems coming in and you wonder how you're going to get through them. But then again, you, you think, well, this is why I'm here, right? Because I solve these problems and I'm paid to solve these problems. So I assume those were some of the behaviors and capabilities that people saw in me that made me have that phone call or pick up that that phone call, you know, when that that first offer came in for the CISO role. So it definitely has its moments, definitely brings a lot of, uh, what what I say, you know, diversity of challenge and diversity of opportunity that you just don't get in any other professions or probably any other roles. We talk a lot about, I mean, the name of the show, right, is centered around the CISO, but really it's a security leadership show. And and one of the things I think that I always try to include is topics that I think are on mind to the listener, to the person who's not yet in leadership or the person that maybe is a junior or mid-level leader that one day wants to become or thinks they want to become a CISO. You just shared a little bit about getting that phone call. And in an earlier conversation, and I love this, I love your candor. You know, I said, you know, what led to you being where you are today? And you, know, you had three things. You probably don't remember all three. Maybe you do. But one of them was you could just get shit done. And we can swear on this show. That's my first rule that I had. Actually, it was my second rule. But what, what are the things in general that got you to the point where you thought you could be or somebody else thought you could be a CISO? You know, when you're coming up and you're establishing yourself and going through and building your career, particularly when you're young in your career, right? I don't think you recognize a lot of the things that your assets, the things that make you valuable, right? You, you, you don't really recognize them. Unless you're super self-aware and super self-confident, maybe your mom tells you, right, everything that's uh, <laughs> good about you. But, uh, you know, in a lot of cases, I, I, I was lucky, right? I had a great mentor early in my security career. So, so he was able to uh, kind of point to some of the things that he, he observed that I had as assets and strengths, which, you know, I was able to build upon. But I think that that ability to execute and get things done, I think I take a pretty simplistic view to uh, security. It's a very complex subject, no doubt, right? But uh, I think if you're going to get stuff done, you've got to break it down and keep it simple. And, uh, you know, I think one of the other assets I've got is strategy, right? Strategic planning. Mm-hmm. Again, keeping the strategy simple, Obviously, it's got to be aligned to your business. 
but your people have got to understand it. I like to break it down. Generally, I've got four key elements of the strategy. Those elements are consistent year after year, right? Now, you got to adjust, right, as the external landscape and the internal landscape changes. you got to be able to adjust. But the, uh, you know, the key things have got to be consistent. For example, I'm a big believer that one of our best defenses is a well-educated employee, right? So education awareness is always going to be one of the key pillars of my strategy. How you execute on that may vary year after year, but the strategic goal of education awareness has to, uh, will always be there, but it'll be that execution that, that changes. And I think, you know, my ability to just stay focused and give the team the tools they need to execute on that, I think that's what I bring to the organization, to the role. You say there's four that are always there and educational awareness seems to be kind of the, the first pillar. What are the other things? So when you go in and you're a the new security leader and you get up in front of the team for the first time, or maybe you're in your first exec meeting and they ask, hey, Mark, what's the plan? So you drop security awareness and you talked about what are the other elements that uh, you include? You know, everything comes goes back to data. And how you secure the data comes back to how you secure the uh, identity. So, so making sure you've got a strong and robust program around identity management and how you're securing access to your data. So that's the first element. We spoke about the, uh, the user education there uh, earlier. The third element would be, and I, I hear uh, you know, a lot of people are beginning to get back and talk about this, and I'm not going to claim, certainly, but this is it's not unique to me. But the idea of uh, what I call back to basics, right, which is which is doing the basics, patching, configuration management, host hardening, those basic IT elements, right, that if we can get them right, you know, it's going to reduce our attack surface considerably. So putting the focus on making sure our IT partners are doing their uh, ops and maintenance, that would be a third element. And then the final piece is because technology, you know, is such a big, big element of everything we do, right, making sure that we're questioning that as we acquire and develop and build new technologies with less and less people available to to execute on that, right? Are we, are we automating, right? Are we, are we using data and analytics to help drive a lot of the discussions? So, you know, that final piece would be making sure that we've got agile technologies and services. And, uh, you know, like I say, we're, we're finding it hard to find good people and it's going to continue like that for a while. So everything we do is can we automate as much as possible? I like that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I agree with it. I think that one of the more difficult pieces of those four that I've experienced firsthand and both as an employee and as a leader and everything in between is I think the CISO sometimes has to own too much. And you mentioned basics, completely agree. Config, IT ops, all that. But there's this bizarre relationship between IT and InfoSec. And oftentimes I see CISOs trying to own too much, meaning, Mark, I need you to protect this place. But no one's giving Mark an asset list that's correct. No one has any data flow. We don't know where our data is, right? There's a, there's a data issue. There is a documentation issue. There's an asset list issue. There's an owner issue. Now, those may or may not be owned by you, Mark, but I'm still going to evaluate you. You're having to build your program on top of those failures. How do you navigate that, Mark? Yeah, it's a great question because it's, you know, and I'm sure pretty much every CISO, right, has got that, that same problem. 
And, you know, just to be frank, it's something I'm going through right now. I went through it in my last CISO role as well. It's right. How do you successfully drive that whole vulnerability management piece, which, which to your point, right, relies on good asset management, relies on good uh, understanding of your applications, where the data is, how it's flowing, everything like that. So I think the, uh, you know, the way we go about it here is, right, you got to know what the family is, right? When I say the family, I mean, the, who are the different players in this that you need at the table to get it working? Because to your point, it's not all on the security team. That's where here I'm kind of fortunate, right? I've got good relationships amongst my IT peers and IT colleagues and kind of got a culture that people understand that ultimately, you know, they're responsible for the vulnerabilities in their space. It's not just the CISO that's responsible for it. The flip side, though, is people externally, right? In the business, in the leadership, they, they do look and say, hey, it's a security thing, so it must be the security guy. So security guy, what are you doing about it? So again, that's where, you know, making sure you're messaging it properly with the, the different business leaders so they understand what the problem is. I think that's where some of the challenge comes in. And, you know, a lot of that just comes down to uh, talking to the right people, trying to explain the problem in a, a non-security type of way. But uh, it is a challenge, absolutely. And uh, I haven't solved it yet. First priority is to make sure we're solving the vulnerability management piece, right? And we're actually getting that attack surface to something which is, uh, which we can live with. And then, you know, I'll worry about how we, uh, message it externally, uh, once we've solved that piece. It's not an easy question. There is no easy answer. To me, I just find it fascinating where I see security teams. It always upsets me when I see them own more pain. The job yeah. is almost impossible anyway. And I love, that's what I love about it. And I'm willing to own that difficult problem. Put me in charge of resilience. Put me in charge of identifying adversary behavior. Put me in charge of, I'm going to own that. You will never question if I own it. It is mine. However, I need others to pull their weight, to carry the water, as they say. And the best way I can describe it, and this is out of a lot of failures on my part, but it is Maybe not my original idea. I don't know that I got it anyplace else, but it's certainly, I think, original in the way I try to articulate it. It's that put it on me to build the best capability. I will build us the best capability in industry, right? However you want to measure, I'll build the most relevant and best capability, but I need to then be evaluated on the rest of the company's adoption of it. Meaning if we're building a world-class vulnerability management program, fantastic. What tooling do I have to identify that? What are my processes to notify? All that. But on top of that, I need someone to adopt who is contributing to the asset list and to the lifecycle management of that. And if we're talking about, you mentioned identity and the entitlement management around that. I mean, in many cases, you can have a fully patched, updated environment, but you have a credential problem as a source of a breach. Right. You have a stolen credential, meaning so the, the management, the monitoring, the management of the entitlement, the life cycle. So if we have credentials that are being managed, but you need help, right? There's an ownership that goes beyond just Mark and Mark's team. And that's, I see many CISOs struggling with that. That's well, see what you, what you point to there is, it's just the sheer complexity of IT systems these days. Right? I mean, I don't think it's just these days. It's, it's been like that for a number of years. But I think when you're in the security, space and particularly when you're in the CISO space, right, you get to see that complexity and it's how do you join up these different things so that it's all working as one machine? And that's the piece I haven't solved yet. 
right? So, you know, how do you get it so that there's a complete end-to-end which starts with, you know, when an asset is first created and you've got the asset record in your CMDB through to the different applications it links to, which is going to drive the operating system and, you know, the, the, the physical asset, you know, everything that goes around it. I don't think IT has yet figured out a good way to, to bring it all together. There's plenty of theories, right? And there's plenty of products that will <laughs> tell you they've solved it, right? But uh, in reality, and I, you know, I don't know, I mean, much of it, I guess, comes down to just the nature of business, but also the nature of uh, IT, you know what I mean? Where you've got legacy systems, for example, how do you, a lot of these CMDB systems don't even account for legacy systems or where they do, I mean, your patch management system doesn't uh, effectively support them. So, so how do you make it all work together? I think that's the challenge. And yeah, I talk to auditors all the time, and they they just look at it as a simple problem. And you're like, it's really not that simple. If it was that simple, you know, we'd have solved it. Yeah, a long time ago. If it were that simple, we wouldn't be talking about it because I would have gotten it done. That's the issue. Where the penalty for failure, to me, it's all chase the pain. You can be an IT director or a, even a CIO and fail at those ingredients and still get your bonus and still probably get promoted even. No one's going to fire you for having a shitty CMDB. Probably, right? Probably not. Yeah. But if you have a breach that is caused by, hey, we didn't know we had this asset. It was sitting out there. It was on the network. No one knew it was there. It's weak and frail and has some split credential and it's getting popped. And what that's going to fall on you. And you could lose your bonus or your job or your credibility because of that. So the yeah. the scales of pain are different and that's where we are and what we need to kind of rationalize and really put more pressure on to say, hey, I'm going to own this. I need you to own that. And they, ha- in order to be good, they have to be good together kind of a thing. And it's, it's really irked me only because you mentioned auditors, man. It felt like, so post-breach, my organization was like an audit factory and it was probably legitimately probably 25% of my time. And probably 15 to 20% of my team's time. Yeah. You know, and, and you know what that's like. And I, before we jump into that, though, mm-hmm. I want to go on the high side of this. You talked about, I said, so what's great about your job? You had two or three things that you're like, hey, I love about this job. Mm-hmm. We've talked a little bit about the strategy bit, but you mentioned developing teams. You mentioned you see people even grow up and even sometimes leave that that's being the best. Like, yeah. share with us a little bit of your mindset around that development of teams and and how is it okay to see someone go right how, talk a little bit about that if you would please for me building great teams so going outside your normal area right outside your 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 normal field of influence and finding good people you know i've had some great success particularly you know my last role i uh, try to do the same in this current role right is you're know, looking for those uh people that are maybe not the best qualified maybe don't not a perfect fit, but you see something in them, right? Where you think, hey, they, they could be a real asset to the to the team, to the organization, to what it is we're trying to achieve. I think that's one of the great things in this role, right? You can you get the opportunity to to make those type of uh, bets if you like. And when it works, it's it's fantastic. So you know, I've, I've had some some great success finding some good people, developing them. Uh, now, ideally, right, you you want people to stay, right? You want to continue developing them. But when you see somebody that you, you've seen something in, you've brought them on, you've helped mentor them, build them, give them their start and information security, cybersecurity, and then seen them go on to do bigger and better things other places. Uh, I mean, that's, that's definitely 
one of the uh, one of the good things about the role. Like I say, you you prefer to keep them and continue to develop them inside the organization, but uh, sometimes you know doesn't work out like that, particularly in this current market. Right, it's such a such a hot market for uh, good talent right now. It's inevitable some people are going to leave. But I think that uh, you know just to summarize it, the uh, being able to develop and build great teams is one of the best things about the CISO role. I completely agree. Just the mentorship that goes in it. And I think if you do your job, if you do it correctly, they'll remember the things you say and remember you forever. There's points to go on the the CV and there's there's points that items that kind of go on the obituary. And that's sort of an obituary thing, right? You know, they'll they'll remember you when they read your name, right? And that's kind of the goal, or at least it is for me, right? That's my that's always been that. Yeah. I want to shift a little bit into your experience in breach response and what you've learned in that as a leader. You made a, a bold statement, which I agree with, that kind of the, the first lesson out of the gate, I think, for an organization that hasn't had one, but then experiences it, is that a cyber breach is not a cybersecurity problem. And that's sort of the moment that executives realize and changes begin to happen. Tell us what you will about that and kind of the the point of what you experience when that sort of point of pain happens and an organization begins to change what it, when does the realization that it's not just a security problem happen how's that go down well it's a timely question actually steve because we're just coming out the back of uh, a major breach uh, it, it's publicly announced right you can go find it out there it's uh, we uh, we publicly announced it uh, several weeks back but yeah, I mean, there was several things came through that whole process, which I think helped business understand that it wasn't a cybersecurity problem, right? Now, first thing was that everything we'd always done is we planned our responses to cyber breaches. This wasn't a ransomware attack. You know, ransomware was probably the closest playbook we had to. We'd always assumed that the uh, the initial entry point in the organization would be from the bottom up, right? We'd, we'd find it through, you know, e- you know, either some kind of alert coming from a desktop or a, an end user would call something in or we'd observe something in the environment. Well, in this case, it actually came through our executive team who were contacted by uh, the threat actor in this case. So we didn't really anticipate that, but straight away, the, the executive team were, you know, alerted. So they had this understanding that something was happening. It also happened at a you know a critical time for us in terms of you know we were going through a, a major business change at the time and divesting a part of the company. Uh, so so again there was a very quick understanding that hey what is the potential angle here so far as the divestiture goes. Uh, so that was a discussion point with the with the business leaders. So I, th- I think with these couple of things going on, it helped our business team quickly see that hey there's more of this than just cybersecurity, right? This this isn't just some some vulnerability that's been exploited that we gotta go and clean up. But right. there's a lot of business angles going on here. So straight from the get go, you know, I, I had great business uh support as we, you know, just embarked on that whole incident response process. I think it's a hell of an introduction was made where an adversary is reaching out to an executive and especially in the middle of a divestiture that is M&A type activity is typically very stressful on its own. Yeah. You know, who's going to go which direction, assets, resources, we got to, okay, we got to split this domain, the emails, I mean, everything. It's a, it's a zoo. It's an absolute mess. 
there's lawyers involved, there's contention, there's, and then on top of that, you've got, you know, someone reaching out that's causing really a distraction to the executives. And so the way that they seemingly embraced this and took it serious is welcoming to hear. And, and I think it's a lesson to all of us, even with the best intentions of you talk about tabletops and experiencing kind of socializing security, you rightfully assume that it would have been bottom up because it often takes that path. Or if you're going to, you can only afford to do so many tabletops a year, right? You can't cover every example, but it's a lesson yeah. to all of us that this is, have you gone over, I guess I'll put it back to you. Do you have a top-down example in your tabletop playbook if you've not gone through it is at least on deck, right? Where the initial point of contact is the CFO or CEO or whoever, right? That's a, I think we've all probably missed that. Yeah. Well, we do now. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yes, you do. Yeah. Yes, you do. <laughs> Lessons were learned there. And, you know, you shared that you were surprised in a positive way on how the organization responded. What do you think is a, a mark of uh, a good response from the company at large if they have a problem similar to yours? I definitely have the right people closely involved in it. So you quickly got to pull together a, a business team as part of the response. So, you know, we kind of alluded to it in the previous question, right? It's not a cybersecurity problem. It's a business problem. So it needs a business team. You know, how we structure ourselves in response to that, I think, went a long way to helping us get control quickly. Yeah, it's going to involve, you know, folks like legal. It's going to involve uh, lines of business. Getting that team pulled together quickly is, I think, key. So whatever organizations, whatever other CISOs are doing, I'm sure most of them are doing the same thing through their tabletops, running other response plans. They've got it in there, but uh, really making sure you're ready to get that business team together quickly. And having them understanding what their role in the process is, what your role as a CISO is in the process as well. Uh, I think I think that's important. But making sure everybody knows you know, what the problem is, what the objective is, right? What is it we want to see at the end of this, I think, is uh, key. And like I say, you got to have the right business people there. Related to that, and I know sometimes it's hard to get this type of attention unless you've had a breach. That's just the reality of it, right? People are busy. but. Once you have a breach, and you and I now have kind of earned that that T-shirt, mm. probably some others, but do you think that people who are involved in breach response that don't work in InfoSec are surprised at how much they're going to have to own in terms of responsibility of, of resolution of the issue? I would say, yeah, right, because... Depending on the nature of the breach, right? No, nobody could really anticipate to, to what extent they're going to be involved. So I think that's probably the biggest surprise, right? It's, hmm. it's like, holy crap, you know, there goes the next four weeks of my life. So I think, uh, I, I, I think that comes as a surprise to people. And, uh, but I think when you're in one of these major breaches, right? Depending on the culture of the organization, I think people realize it's a problem and it's a crisis and it's okay. What are we going to do to fix this? And if you've got the right culture, and the right leadership, I think that whole bit becomes easier right? because people people understand that the right people at the right level of the organization have got visibility to it and are looking for a solution. So, you know, I think it becomes easier to build that team that's going to execute the, the plan. You told me earlier that in the heat of battle, everything kind of takes on its own form, that assumptions yeah. really don't matter because you kind of do what's necessary. Like the even if you assume something, it doesn't matter anymore. There's a new kind of reality. Right. And that the speed 
that's needed for the team to come together and the scale is really kind of unprecedented as it relates as you shift from tabletop or even your IR plan to the realities. Would you add any more to that? You, know, you, you mentioned heat of the battle, assumptions, speed, and scale. Is there anything you would want someone else to know that hasn't gone through it yet that encompasses that idea and that feeling? I think you've just got to be open to uh, any idea, right? Don't rule anything out. You'll get all kinds of ideas thrown at you. You'll maybe come up with all kinds of ideas yourself, but, but don't rule anything out. And that, you know, there was things happened in our situation, which I don't know how we would ever have planned for it, right? But being able to think creatively, listen to people, right, for their ideas and thoughts. But, uh, you know, one example would be, you know, a whole, a whole data analysis angle to it, right? I mean, we, we just hadn't planned that we'd, you know, maybe have to have a team go through a lot of data and a lot of files to try and understand what those files meant. It's in your instant response plan, right? But the, the actual mechanics of doing that and what it takes to get it done and who's the right person, right? Because that data could be anywhere within your business, right? So, right. so you need to put, put together team and people that can quickly delve into the business and make those connections and get people looking at the data, answering questions, responding, analyzing it. You know, you've got to quickly come up with, you know, I just gave that one example there, data analysis, but you've got to quickly come up with a way you're going to solve that problem. So, you know, be flexible. And again, as a cybersecurity leader, understand your role in the process. You're there to lead the cyber incident response, right? You're there to be a trusted advisor to the business and to convey confidence to the leadership team that you've got that cyber response. But you don't own the entire problem, right? So, so you've right. got to lean on, you know, your, your legal team for the for the legal guidance and the legal advice. You got to lean on your business team, right, for an understanding of the the data, the value of the data, how it you know, what that data means for the business. So so you're not there to solve everything, right? But you're you gotta listen and ask the right questions. You shared with me and I I completely agree. I see organizations mess this up all the time. You said communicating with your customer is the yeah. number one thing you can do to manage the situation. And you kind of broke down what that meant and what led to success there. But I don't disagree. In fact I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think it's something that most people, even if they have a way to communicate, whether it's an internal customer or external, they haven't thought of the scale. You mentioned scale earlier. We talked about you know the scale of the situation. Well, notify every one of your customers right now that there's a problem when you don't have all the data. So how do you manage that communication? If it's the most important thing, what's your recommendation on how to manage it, Mark? This was probably one of the lessons learned for me, right? Because me... In previous roles where I was the CISO, one of our suppliers uh, was breached, right? You know, I'd been on the opposite side of the fence saying, hey, you know, what happened? What does it mean for my company's data? And all that type of stuff, right? So, and I'd always appreciate organizations that responded in a certain way, right? Being transparent, being quick. However, here, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, my initial response was, well, we got to get a communication out to key key stakeholders straight away but uh you know a decision was made and as it turns out i think it was the right decision to go for a more structured approach in terms of what we were going to communicate and how we were going to communicate that and i think uh you know that was one of the cases where me listening to other people i think 
helped me because uh, I probably didn't have the understanding exactly at that point how our business worked, what our stakeholders expected, the pace at which we moved. I didn't have that full picture at that point. So listening to others and you know letting others craft that communication plan and the pace of that communication plan and how it was going to operate, I think, I think helped me through this process. And I think, you know, in, in our situation, we, we elected to go for dialogues with the key people, you know, have a conversation to the extent, you know, I've, I've met with, lost count of the number of different suppliers and customers I've met with in the last couple of months. But, uh, but you know, rather, rather than answering questions in email, just having a conversation, right, you know, letting them ask their questions. And I think yeah, you can have a richer dialogue, I think, if you're uh, talking to people. It's going to consume a lot more time, don't get me wrong, but I think I think the value for your organization of you being the cyber leader and being in front of your customers and your suppliers goes a lot further than just simply, you know, sending out some kind of electronic message. There was a situation, your statement just reminded me of something from my past, which isn't always the best, but I can remember someone having to go meet with a very important customer during some point in my past, I'll just leave it at that. But they asked, uh, somebody else went and they were of a higher rank than I was, which is insignificant, but a point of the story. And the important customer, multi-billion dollar company said, are you the person managing the breach? And this person, you know, are you the ones actually sitting with the responders? Are you the person, are you there with them every day? And this person kind of hem-hawed and kind of gave a half answer. And then ultimately the person said, I'm not going to meet anymore with you until I get to sit with the person I want to, I want to meet. I want assurance from the person actually managing the problem is effectively their message. And so now that's not going to be everybody's position and managing a breach is not about one person. It's not about even one team. It's, it's multiple teams. It's a unified approach, but there are cases where I was surprised at how many people wanted to meet with the technical lead of the breach response, the investigation. They wanted the answer from the source. And so what happens, there's this pressure on that person and on that team to then sort of farm out approved and relevant answers in a timely way for purposes of communications, for purposes for that needs to be reviewed by legal and then corporate comms. Do you have, you know, I know legal took the lead in, in your last situation, which is a very positive thing, but any other feedback or opinion advice? on what I just sort of mentioned in terms of the wanting to talk to the direct workers, wanting that confidence from the answers received. Did you experience that? So, yeah, I mean, the approach we came up with, we, we had a few folks from our site in the discussions with the, with the different customers and suppliers. And, you know, I took point on the, the cyber technical type questions. And I think, uh, and then we had other folks that, you know, questions came up about data analysis or legal type questions. They could respond to that. But I think having, having the, the senior security leader on the call answering the questions directly and openly, I think definitely helped. You know, when you're having a conversation, they can ask different questions and you can respond, I think, more openly than, uh, you know, you typically would if it was going through that whole legal approval and vetting and everything like that if you were doing it uh, through email and stuff like that. So I think uh, I think one of, the, one of the other observations I had actually was uh, after we'd done a few of these calls, uh, I realized I had to get a, probably a little bit more technical than I'd been used to for, uh, for a few years. So uh, 
you know, in all honesty, there was probably a, if you go into the nuts and bolts of how our particular situation and the attack and how it was exploited happened, it, it, it was a level of technical detail that I don't know and you know, probably don't need to know on a day-to-day basis, but I had to quickly quickly learn that so I could convey confidence to the uh, customers and stakeholders we were meeting at, right, that we, we understood what this issue was, we understood the problem, and, uh, you know, we had a plan and to just, just convey that we knew what we were doing, right? And I think having that technical knowledge and being able to talk to is, uh, you know, I think if you're going to get in these calls, you, you're going to have to quickly get that information. So I think one of the questions, there's really two things I want to kind of cover before we close here. One of the things that you mentioned that you were better at was having to get more technical. And that initially, I was kind of upset about the answer related to, and I, I misunderstood it when you, when you said it, you were stating that you had to get into the details of the breach in order to be respected in the room. I, feeling-wise, going through this, my immediate reaction was, no, you've been through this sort of massive business and technical problem that has developed you kind of as a leader, right? There's this, there's, it's a, it's a test that you've been through that could never really be synthesized. The pressures we talked about before can't be synthesized. The attention you're getting, the duration, the conversations. So now I get a little more what you meant by having to be more technical, but what are the ways that um, you think you've grown as a leader? The things that you've earned that no one can take from you at this point? You know, if I think back now to how this, you know, the past, what are we now, five months into the year and how this whole whole thing unfolded in terms of the, the breach and how it's affected me. I mean, first of all, I would say, you know, I had almost a perfect storm of things going on around about the whole commencement of this, right? So we had the... Uh, the execs learning about it first, which we hadn't expected. We had the whole uh, divestiture thing that was going on at the same time. Then for me personally, it literally spun up two days after I'd relocated to uh, back to Canada. So I had a whole load of business things going on, leadership things going on, and then the personal timing issue of uh, the relocation going on at the same time. So so it forced me to uh, test myself and extend myself personally right uh, like just a series of events that you could never really plan for things happening right now you might say if one of those things happened right well let's say we had a breach and one of those things happened how would i deal with it but when three things happen and there was other things going on as well right, <laughs> right. you know how would you deal with that so never really thought about that but uh, it definitely grew me and learning that hey i've now got a new parameter if you like or, or level that i'm capable of operating uh, with all these different things going on in the right. background, it's given me that confidence that, uh, yeah, when these things happen, you know, you've been through it before. You know, you've got the capabilities, you've got the, the, the mechanisms to deal with that. So having that confidence that you can get through these things has is, is definitely helped me grow. Because you, you only really learn when things happen in real life. And that's how you get confidence. And then, then the other piece, I think... Uh, probably mentioned on our previous chat, Steve, right, that I'm, I'm definitely not the smartest guy in the room, right? I don't, I don't claim to be. I don't want to be, right? I think, I think uh, that's why you hire great people to help the organization and to help collectively you all to be the, the smartest people in the room. 
I learned that in these situations, when you've got these crisis events going on, is that so far as your business is concerned, when it comes to cybersecurity, they expect you, the CISO, to be the smartest guy in the room, right? And that comes with a whole lot of pressure, a whole lot of responsibility. Uh, there's pressure from your leadership, from your team, from your suppliers, from your customers, right? Everybody's looking at you to say, hey, you're the cyber guy, you're the cyber leader. How are you going to solve this problem? So, you know, that would be a bit of advice to you CISOs, folks thinking on getting into the role that, you know, if, you, if you're ready for that challenge, then great, go for it. But if you, if you feel it's daunting that when you're in the middle of a crisis, if you're not ready to, to step up, be the smartest guy in the room. And I don't mean that in a conceited kind of way, right? Well, what I mean is that you've, you've got to convey the confidence that you've, you've got a plan and you understand how to solve the problem. And if you're not ready to do that, then it's going to be a struggle. But if you're ready for that challenge, then go for it because you're going to get it. <laughs> I can assure anybody that's in cybersecurity and wants to get in a leadership position, you will get the opportunity to manage through a breach. That's inevitable and probably more than one. I can remember going back into a similar situation where people were afraid of being in the middle of a breach. And I said, one day you'll be able to answer the question of, describe to me your worst professional day. But if you quit now, which some of them wanted to, relieve yourself of the opportunity, the great opportunity to describe how well you did. And that the experience through that, I think, is really important. And, and I think it changes us professionally. You know, the statement that you had made earlier, where if we're in this profession, we're going to have to manage probably multiples of these. And so failure in many ways is okay. In fact, you're going to learn from it. So those are extremely well points made. And I, I want to close on one thing. We've, we're, we've gone a little over time, but pursuant to the name of the show, Mark, the new CISO, we've covered a lot today, but, but um, what does being a new CISO mean to you? For me, and maybe this has colored somewhat by my experience in the last couple of months, but I think the, uh, a, key, a key piece of being the new CISO, particularly when you see and read and hear everything that's happening externally is being the uh, crisis manager I think is is a big part of the role now I think the uh, the volume of the scale and the challenge we got it just makes that inevitable uh, there's uh, so much happening out there and I think uh, the tools we've got I mean let's let's be honest right they're, they're, they're not up to the uh, to the job right and some of the stuff we spoke about earlier with the, the diversity of IT and understanding how, how do you manage a basic problem like vulnerability management successfully in a big organization which has got a large IT footprint some of it's going to be new some of it's in the cloud some of it's going to be a legacy right how, how, how do you manage all that successfully everything that's happening out there just makes it so much more difficult to manage it so so we've got to anticipate there's going to be more crisis events Right, and that puts us in the position of effectively being a crisis manager. So having the, uh, I guess the uh, the stress threshold to live with that <laughs> is is got to be something you you, you got to possess that right, and you got to thrive upon it if you're going to survive in here. And that, that's that's before you you know you take away all the the stuff that let's be honest nobody really cares about the day stuff like you know managing your policy framework and your different risk assessments and audit responses and everything that goes around the job, right? It's, uh, it's when these crisis events happen that you get business and leadership attention. And I think the, you know, any new CISO 
seasons going forward, that that's where they got to be ready to uh, to step up and you know be ready for that uh, for that response. Oh, that's I completely agree, and that's perfect advice, Mark. Thank you so much for spending time with us today and for being on the show. Yeah, thanks, Steve. I enjoyed it. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.